Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week's Crypto Unstacked features our very first guest, Annabelle Huang. She is a female force in the crypto industry and currently heads OTC and Structured Solutions at Amber Group. In this episode, Annabelle gives her take on trends in the crypto derivatives industry, explains how Black Thursday was a catalyst for bespoke options from market participants such as miners, and shares her thoughts on the differences in crypto derivatives trading activity between Asian and Western institutional players. I hope you enjoy this week's episode with the Straddle Sisters. Annabelle, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. So thrilled to have you on and thanks for being our very first guest. Thanks, Leslie. I'm very honored to be on Crypto Unstacked. Great. Yeah, we have a lot to cover today on all things crypto options. But first, you know, I think it would be great if you can share more about yourself and your path to crypto for those of our listeners who don't already know you. Yeah, sure. So hi, everyone. My name is Annabelle Huang. I currently look after the OTC trading and structuring business here at Ember Group. Prior to this, I actually started off my career on Wall Street in New York, uh, where I worked as a FX structure at Deutsche Bank before, before I moved on to similar roles at Nomura. And I left the traditional finance world in 2018, where I joined a decentralized exchange that's built on Ethereum, uh, which was co-founded by two of the Carnegie Mellon alums that I knew in New York. And I was primarily doing business development for them in Asia. And that's where I met the Ember guys in Hong Kong. And last year, I realized I, I really do miss the markets and this trading. Um, and I, I can see that Amber has quite a global reach covering major players, both in the West and obviously having a very deep roots in Asia. So I thought it was a really unique position to be. Yeah, awesome path to crypto. And so before diving in, actually, I like to set the scene for our listeners. No doubt we've seen the crypto derivatives market grow steadily over the past few years. You know, the market now offers all sorts of tradable derivatives contracts from perpetual swaps to futures and options. And we're seeing volumes pick up across regulated and unregulated exchange traded platforms, as well as over the counter trading desks. And the rise of crypto derivatives should be really important, especially to the institutional investors listening to this podcast, because derivatives offers a variety of risk management tools, which you might agree with me on is very important. And Coindesk's research article on crypto derivatives summarizes it quite well, saying that crypto derivatives offers, quote, 
a variety of investment possibilities, such as a more familiar way to custody a buy and hold strategy, uh, hedges against long positions in a volatile asset category, and leverage to increase exposure in a supply-constrained market, end quote. So with that said, Annabelle, what trends are you seeing in the crypto derivatives market right now? So definitely the crypto derivatives market has grown a lot over the years. Like you said, it started off as more of a Delta One derivative, like the perpetual swaps, which became the most liquid products traded in crypto. And over in the options side, you know, it started off more as small size retail punting. But now over the last few years, especially in 2020, the market has really matured a lot with a lot more market makers in the market and a lot more organic demands from people within the crypto industry. And the infrastructure has also been improved where there's a lot more trade execution platforms that help market makers and the takers trade with each other and settle on different derivatives exchanges. So I think you know the trend is that the derivatives market is definitely picking up on the options side as well. Got it, got it. Yeah, so definitely seeing increase in liquidity across all types of venues. And and kind of this ties into what I wanted to talk about next, which is around capital efficiency and flexibility, which is something derivatives trading definitely offers uh, to both retail and and institutional traders, basically allowing traders uh, to trade more with less capital. Is that something that you'd agree with? Could you kind of expand on that? Yeah, sure. So I think a lot of people tend to think of leverage as only in terms of margin trading or opening up leverage positions on spot or futures. But with options, you can also achieve leverage where you can express your view buying a call or a put option and only depositing the initial premium upfront. That could be quite a capital efficient way to express your view and actually get the payout at the end of it. It's more risk mitigated. A lot of times if you're long options, then the max loss is known up front and you would not be risk getting liquidated as you would on a lot of the Delta One structures. Could you also uh, share more about the differences between exchange traded options and options traded over the counter, such as with Amber? Could you kind of expand on the differences between the two? Yeah, sure. So in part, it is quite similar to trading spot on exchange versus over the counter, where you'll get a lot less slippage on a large size trade. But in in addition to that, uh, in the options market, when you trade OTC, you can get more customized strikes and even broken dates versus those standard listings that you see on exchange where, you know, it's mostly quarter-end or month-end expiries and uh, very specific interval strikes. But with us at Amber, we can really quote any dates and any strike levels that could potentially work better for clients' specific cash flow needs. We can also quote all-in prices on a lot of the structured trades where it could be a combination of different underlying options. So you won't have to execute each leg separately on exchange. Right, right. So and Well, now I want to turn to events on March 12th, also known as Black Thursday. You're, of course, glued to the screens that day. I mean, we saw market moves like we haven't seen in a really long time. Do you think the crypto market sell-off was a catalyst for options trading, given the elevated volatility? Are you seeing options volume pick up at all? Yeah, for sure. We've seen the options volume picking up a lot after the March sell-off. 
And I don't think it's a function of just elevated volatility per se. I think it's more as a result of the market thinking about risk in a more sophisticated way with the participants thinking what other instruments are available either for them to hedge their risk or as an alternative way to express their view than simply going leverage long on spot, which they probably get liquidated on. Right. So... Yeah, and it's quite interesting. I think after after the Black Swan events, you know, the Black Thursday, it's been most of my time in the next few weeks just, just talking to clients, mostly educating them on what an option is, how do we trade it, how the settlement work, what is physical delivery versus a cash settled option, et cetera, and really walking them through the risk and reward um, that an option gives. So I think a lot of them are starting to gain interest and thinking a lot more about just different ways to trade in the market. Yeah, very interesting. So were these guys coming to you um, before the sell-off, you know, with requests to put on hedging structures, or was it more kind of speculative and people were wanting to so-called punt? How were people thinking about risk before the sell-off? So I remember before the sell-off, I actually went on a few business trips to visit our big clients. A lot of them are miners or different projects that have inherent risks um, that they're holding in the industry. I remember having some talks with them on different hedging structures, but none, none of them seemed that interested just because they just think that spot is going to go up. Uh, there's limited downside risk. If anything, they're more willing to monetize their, their view by either selling a put or a call in a naked way, even sometimes to gain leverage to their positions. But that has really changed after the sell-off where a lot of them have turned and really rethink their positions and, and thinking risk profile that they should hold, uh, given that they do have a lot of exposure to Bitcoin and, and Ethereum or other coins in, in this industry. So the conversations I've had post-March 12th has mostly been, like I said, on how to better risk manage or what other tools are available for them to do that. Yeah, makes sense. The market correction really taught them a lesson here. And forcing them to kind of get more educated on what other risk management tools are there for them. So what type of client profile do you think uh, really is in, in need of sort of a combination of tools, both futures and options? What types of clients might fit this profile? Based on a lot of the conversations I've had, I think miners, right, who inherently holds a lot of crypto and have a lot of exposures to the market already, they have been thinking about hedging um, and they're now actually pulling the plugs, hedging with futures or options. I see that they tend to like option-based structures more just because with Delta One structures like futures or forwards, you lock in a level, which is which is great because there's no residual risk, but you're you're basically locked in at whatever the current level is. But with an option-based structure, you can participate on a lot of the upside, right? Should the coins you hold appreciate value, and maybe you just pay a little premium upfront, or there are all these other zero-cost structures that we can put together. Those have been more popular with them where they can give up some premium but also keep a lot of the upside in, in their crypto which is I think why they're in this business in the first place. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So I'm really curious, what are some interesting options structures you've seen recently that investors have been trading? 
Yeah, so we've recently printed a few quite sophisticated structures with our clients. Some of them are miners, some of them are token issuers looking for treasury management solutions. Um, one such structure is a seagull. It is a combination of a long put, a sold at a money call, and a sold out of the money call. The payout actually looks like a lopsided seagull, so hence the name. And the way it works is that the, the long put that it bought um, it essentially works as a downside protection in case market moves against them. They fund such purchase with a sold at the money call, which essentially makes them sell their treasury at current levels. But they also buy back a out of the money call, which allows them to retain the upside participation for a big move up. And this really fit into their need to have insurance on their treasury holdings, but not really miss out too much on all the upside that the market can bring. This structure overall is zero cost. So that is especially attractive to them to put a hedge on and no additional cost. So another quite interesting structure that I've printed recently with a minor client is a two by one leveraged color. So they sold 2x the amount of the upside to fund the purchase of a downside protection. And again, this whole structure is zero cost and really plays to the fact that they get to monetize the fact that they don't mind selling more of their Bitcoin holdings to buy insurance at current spot for no additional cost. And such insurance would have been really expensive to buy given the elevated volatility. So overall, the structure is quite attractive to them. That's really interesting. So these two structures you're talking about, are they really costless? Just want to understand the economics a bit more. Essentially, there's no premium that the clients need to pay up front. Really, what they're doing is that they're using the premium that they receive from selling an option to fund the purchase of another. So these zero-cost structures just offer different trade-offs versus owning a vanilla option outright where they risk giving up some upside to have that protection on the downside for free. And oftentimes I find that it is a lot more convincing to them to overlay a hedge at no additional cost versus having to pay a chunky insurance fee up front. From what I understand, right, insurance only works if you buy it before a catastrophe. Um, you typically have <laughs> yeah. to be convinced to buy insurance in case of, let's say, an accident, a natural disaster, or in trading, a market correction. So just like you can't time an accident, you also can't time a market sell-off either. So that's why I, I think it's really interesting to learn about these innovative option structures beyond selling a call and put. So how does this compare to what you saw in the traditional space in your pre-crypto life? Uh, I remember pitching very similar structures back in the bank where I was at DB. And oftentimes, a lot of the clients I covered, namely U.S. corporates or big private equity funds, they're quite reluctant to put on these more innovative hedging structures because of hedge accounting issues or regulatory capital requirements, et cetera. And they often choose to execute more standard trade instead, which is not the most economical, in my mind, working for them as a hedge. But over here in crypto land, I think people tend to think about it in pure economics and whatever best fits their view and their their needs and their cash flow demands. You know, I'm, I'm quite happy to see that development, actually. 
Yeah, that's super interesting. I don't think many people uh, see the structured product role for the creativity that it really embodies, but I think that's exactly how the role is designed to be, um, you know, for, for the structure to come up with really creative risk management solutions based on investors' needs. As you just said, crypto definitely offers no shortage of volatility, so it definitely sure. gives way to lots of opportunities for structures such as yourself. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P.io. So now I want to zoom in on Asia, where we're based. You obviously talk to market participants, not only in Asia, but really all over the world. Uh, what are your thoughts on the differences in derivatives trading activity between Asian institutional players and those in the West? It's a great question. They actually do behave very differently, the players in the West and in the East. For Asian players, I've seen a lot more of the speculation mentality where they're more willing to monetize the high volatility and sell vol to pick up more yield. And I think maybe that's partly because a lot of the Asian players here are miners who are oftentimes, I guess, so-called diehard Bitcoin believers and they're willing to monetize a lot of the view that you know, I don't mind accumulating more Bitcoin when it's lower so they can sell some covered puts against it and pick up a decent yield on top of it. Versus in the West, I think there are a lot more players such as crypto funds or token issuers where they might have more of a judiciary duty to their LPs or to their investors. So they oftentimes take a more conservative approach and tend to be more active in terms of hedging or um, other ways to mitigate their risk. The difference is probably due to a lot of the different mentalities, um, different client mm -hmm. characteristics, and also the difference in the regulatory landscape. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing your insight there. I think it's always interesting to keep tabs on the differences in trading culture uh, between the East and the West. And we see a lot of that coming from just understanding the social behavior in the traditional financial world. Something else I wanted to bring up and ask you about is this major price move we've seen just over the past few days from, I think it was roughly $7,500 to $9,300. In terms of creative option structures, how do you think investors could have prepared for a move like this? So based on a lot of the recent discussions I've had, the market generally felt unsure where directionally it would go. But a lot of people, myself included, felt like either a squeeze up or a sharp move down would happen again. And one way to express this view is through a straddle structure where you buy and add the money put and call at the same time. So directionally, you're not really taking a view on spots, hence what we call a delta mutual structure, but you're just a long vol in general. One thing with 
this kind of structure is that it can look quite expensive to put on, given that Bitcoin volatility is very high. Although it's come down from almost 120% post a March sell-off to now at around 70%, you know, that's still going to cost you about 10% upfront premium to just put a one-month straddle on to express this view. So oftentimes people would think it is quite expensive and end up not pulling the plug on a structure like this. But I always think of it in relative terms. What do you mean by relative? So I think we talk about vol in a more general sense, but really there's a difference between implied volatility and realized volatility. So implied vol is the market expectation on how volatile the Bitcoin market would be in the upcoming periods versus realized vol is historically how much vol we've seen in the past already. And when you put on a straddle structure, the premium is priced based on implied vol versus the P&L in this trade is actually based on where it actually realized in volatility terms. So 10% might seem expensive in absolute terms, but like you just mentioned, right, we just saw 20% move in one day. So this trade would have already been in the money with further room for profitability given there is remaining time value. Got it. Yeah, thanks for explaining that. So for those of you, like myself, who didn't know what an option straddle was, hope you've now added this to your trading lingo. So now we're coming to the end of our conversation here and wanted to ask a question that I've long been intrigued by. And I'll I'll have to admit, it's a challenging one, uh, but would love to hear your thoughts. What important truth about the crypto space do you believe in that few might agree with you on? That is a difficult question. Um, to, to be honest, I think uh, this has been on my mind lately, actually. Um, I think a lot of us would think that decentralization is kind of the goal of the blockchain community, and it's, it's the central theme that really unites us for all of us in crypto. And, and, and that's what I really did believe in when I first joined industry. Um, I was at a decentralized exchange uh, building a tool that facilitates decentralized peer-to-peer trading. Um, And I did feel self-empowerment by doing that, where I'm holding custody of my own funds, I'm trading without an intermediary, I'm trusting the smart contracts on Ethereum to do that. But but now I've spent more time in crypto. I'm not really sure if that's the case anymore. Uh, I've seen a lot lately that um, a lot of people prefer to use centralized custody to trade on centralized venues because they feel safer and perhaps more familiar um, and they're perhaps scared to put it all in their own hands. And I was actually having a, a conversation with a client lately and, and she said that, and I quite agree with her on that, decentralization is, is, is quite like privacy. It is a need for some people, but it's not a necessity for all. Mm. And yeah, and then I think that maybe Bitcoin is decentralized. It's built in this fashion because it has to be, right? To be the internet money, it has to be censorship resistant in in a sense. And don't get me wrong, I I think decentralization offers a lot of other benefits such as um, security uh, in addition to being censorship resistant and, and all that. But Right now, right, I, I'm thinking maybe decentralization is not the goal, but more the means to an end in this case. Yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, you know, this question of is decentralization possible? 
you know, I think that's something that we try to grapple with and we've been grappling with that for a really long time. <laughs> you know, the growth of the decentralized financial industry, otherwise known as DeFi, has really proven that there are enough people in this industry that care to see this work out because, you know, they believe in the ethos, they believe in the philosophy and that this will ultimately be the future. And my personal belief here is that it'll take some time to get there. It's a gradual process, but I think decentralization and centralization can definitely coexist in the same ecosystem. And I think it'll just work for different people. To have both options is important. I'm just glad every day that we're here in, in our side of the industry, which is the financial services side, we can make this work better for our clients. And I feel like so long as everyone is doing their part, we can really see this industry as a whole flourish. Yeah, for sure. I can't agree with you more on that. So wonderful. Now it's time for the rapid fire questions, Lambo style. Um, and, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and I just wanted to, you know, ask you very short questions and you can explain and expand on it if you want to. I'm going to ask you your opinion on something bullish or bearish and, and you can just give me your answer. Let's Great. Do it. So Bitcoin bullish or bearish? Well, I have to say I am long-term bullish and medium-term, I guess, cautiously bullish. <laughs> Libra 2.0, bullish or bearish? Libra 2.0, I'm neutral, but Libra 1.0 is definitely bearish. Yeah, I might have to agree with you there. Uh, DCEP or digital currency electronic payment, bullish or bearish? I would say overall bullish, but uh, again, it's very different than crypto. Um, and what is a development within the crypto industry that has surprised you over this past year? Well, I mean, 2020 has really been a year full of surprises, um, <laughs> both in crypto and, you know, just in the world generally. I'm not sure if anything can surprise me anymore at this point, <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think going into March this year, having was such a big topic, but, but mm -hmm. now it's Seem more like a non-event as we go into it just because so much has happened this year so that has been quite surprising right right and what excites you going forward about the crypto industry as bad as it sounds i think globally um the, the macro environment is not looking so great and i think that potentially gives some boost um, to the crypto markets just because maybe more investors are starting to realize that the the dollars or the euros or you know all the all the cash on their hands are going to face inflation risks. I'm not sure what other asset class makes sense to invest at the moment other than perhaps gold. And I think Bitcoin offers quite an attractive alternative just as a investment, right, in in very difficult markets like this. Great. Well, Annabelle, thanks so much for playing Rapid Fire. Appreciate you coming on the Crypto Unstacked podcast this week. I very much enjoyed our conversation. It's obviously always great to chat with you. Thanks so much and hope to bring you on the show again soon. Thanks, Leslie. It's my pleasure. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media, I'll provide details in the show notes, and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambo. that's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care, and see you at our next episode.